the letter to the Romans, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of God for the people of God. Last Sunday, I spoke with you about how we can use and cultivate music, architecture, and the arts as a means of experiencing God. I read to you a few quotes from Ada Robinson, the Tulsa artist and designer of this beautiful sanctuary and of this building. I want to read to you again a few sentences of what she wrote as it connects with our topic for today. She said, All appointments have been designed with the hope of creating a place that is honest, harmonious, and spiritualized, that those who may not react through their reason and those who may not react through their emotion may at least through visualization be moved to a higher conception of the presence of divine power. She's recognizing in that quote that we have differences in personality and differences in approach to life, including our life of faith. And she recognizes that some people come through reason and some through visual arts, some through other kinds of arts. This morning, in contrast to last week where we talked about the arts, we're going to be talking about reason and the importance of using our minds and our grasp of faith and how we live out our faith. It's a way or a means of experiencing God. The core value we're looking at today is the fourth one we've explored. I put it in your outline. It reads like this. The Boston Avenue Church community embraces a reasoned approach to faith and Scripture. A reasoned approach to faith and Scripture. We're utilizing Paul, who wrote this letter to the early Christians in Rome. The early part of this long letter deal with salvation of both Jews and Gentiles and how God has been at work through the history of these people and how God's going to finally save or bring all into right relationship with the divine. But this last part of the letter, Paul turns his attention to practical matters. By the time we get to chapter 12, he's talking about practical faith and how we practice being followers of Christ. So we hear this in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Present yourselves, your bodies, as a holy and living sacrifice, which is your spiritual worship. In short, Paul is saying, show up, be present. If you've declared yourself as a follower of Christ, when the followers gather, you should be there. You should gather with those you've made a commitment to. You should come to worship God. You should come together to be a part of the body of Christ. 
there's no church that can remain vital if those who are affiliated with the church decide that they're no longer going to participate. Paul's pointing out to these early Christians, and it's a good lesson for us as well, that it's important to be present, to come together on a regular basis so that God can work in our midst. You hear the same thing in the United Methodist vow for membership. You've probably heard me say this a number of times. You said it when you became a member or responded in the affirmative when the pastor asked you if you were ready to fully participate through your prayers, presence as an attendance, gifts, service, and witness. We believe as United Methodists it's important to come together, to show up when the People of God gather for worship for each of us to make a commitment to be there, to be a part of the family of God. Now, most people come to worship for their own spiritual growth or nurturing their own faith. And that is definitely important, but that's only a part of it. The other thing is that if you're not here, God cannot use you to help somebody else. And God uses us on Sunday morning or any time we come together in so many different ways to be a blessing to other people. I think we could use sort of specific Christian language to say to be present is something that is important because it allows God to use you in ministry with another person. Let me give you an example. Not so many weeks ago, an older woman came to our sanctuary on a Sunday morning for worship. The person sitting close to her, who was a member, after the service struck up a conversation. The woman began to tell her about some traumatic things she had been through. Our person, our member, listened, encouraged her, supported her. But then she said, you know what, before you leave, let me introduce you to one of our staff people. They could tell you more about how we could help you here at the church. So she found one of the staff and made that introduction. The staff person talked further with this person about different ministries that are happening here that she could be a part of. Before I finished shaking hands in the hallway, someone alerted to me, we have a visitor today that needs a little extra support. Could you come as well? So if when I finished shaking hands, I went and found her. I was able to talk with her, support her, pray with her before she left. Now, if none of us had come that day, what would have happened? She probably would have come and left without any needs being met. But because our member committed to coming, I think God used her and then because one of our staff people was available, God used them. And then because I was available, God used me because we were present. God was able to use us in a way that none of us could have predicted. None of us knew this woman was coming. We did not know what her needs were. And yet because we were present with the body of believers, I believe God used each of us to begin to affect healing that she's doing in this person's life. Paul says, present yourselves as part of your spiritual worship. But then it's interesting to me, I had chosen this text as the one to use with this core value. Then early last week when I was reading some commentaries, I saw in the footnote of one of my Bibles here 
The commentator said the word spiritual could also be translated as reasonable. You can present yourselves as your reasonable worship. Another one of the commentators said the word actually that Paul is using comes from the Greek word that we would translate often as logical. So you could say spiritual worship or reasonable worship or logical worship. What is Paul saying here? What is the reasonable or the logical or the spiritual thing to do once you've experienced the grace of God? And Paul says the reasonable thing, the logical thing, the spiritual thing to do is present yourself to God. To respond to God. To come together with other Christians to worship. Paul is clear that God initiates God loves us first. But he says, once you recognize that God is your creator, your redeemer and your sustainer, you want to respond. If you've understood this good news, you're ready to respond in praise and thanksgiving and wonder and amazement. And Paul says that's the appropriate response. Then Paul says, this will shape your life from now on. If you recognize who God is and respond reasonably or logically or spiritually, it will shape your life from now on. We hear it in verse number 2. He wrote it like this. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect or the perfect will of God. One commentator writing about this passage wrote this. God calls us to use our minds. God wants us to use the intellectual abilities with which we have been blessed. John Wesley, who taught logic at Oxford University, emphasized the importance of reason. God asked that we further develop our intellectual abilities. Part of what it means to love God is that we develop our minds in ways that deepen or enhance our expressions of love. Then the same commentator pointed to the example of King Solomon. There was King David, great king of Israel, his son Solomon. This story is told in the Hebrew Scriptures in the book called First Kings. There are several rivals who want to become the successor king after David. Solomon is one of them. There is some bloodshed. There are some turbulent times. But then the author of 1 Kings tells us that one night when Solomon was asleep, God comes to Solomon and asks Solomon in a dream, what would you ask of me? Or what do you want from me? And Solomon responds by praising God as a God of steadfast love, offering himself to be a servant to God. And then I put this in your outline. He says this, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, able to discern between good and evil. And the story says God is pleased with Solomon's request and grants it. 
And then the commentator says this about Solomon. His example demonstrates that wisdom involves more than memorizing data. Although there is some value in memorizing information, Solomon's wisdom involves much more than storing up informational tidbits. To be wise is to know how to fully integrate the information we have stored with the situation that is at hand. This integration takes into account the relationship we have with God and we have with others. I think we can tie that with this advice from Paul in Romans where he says, be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you can discern the will of God or what is good or what is the perfect will of God or you can discern the difference between good and evil. You can discern, therefore, the way to go or the way that God is leading you. United Methodists have a long history of saying it's important for us to be thinkers, to use our reason, to study Scripture, study the teachings of the church, think about and reflect upon our own experience, and put all of that together. We believe the truth of Christ can withstand any questions anybody may have, any doubts that you may struggle with. It's okay to bring them here. You do not have to check your mind at the door. We do not want you to segment the rest of your life from your life of faith. We hope that it's all integrated. But we have responsibility. We have a role to play as we bring all of that together in our own minds and in our own lives. I think it's important to remember that when Jesus was asked about the greatest commandment, he says we should love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The United Methodist Discipline, which is our guidebook, talks a good deal about this. I want to read you just a couple of sentences when it speaks of the importance of using reason. It says this, although we recognize that God's revelation and our experiences of God's grace continually surpass the scope of human language and reason, we also believe that any disciplined theological work calls for the careful use of reason. We want you to use your reason. We want you to think deeply we believe it's important to our christian witness that we're able to articulate our own personal faith experience we can think through the study of scriptures the teachings of the church and craft them as a vital witness for today let me give you one example from john wesley's writings he has a sermon or really it's more like a treatise he called on the edu- he called on the education of children he begins by looking at this verse from Proverbs that says, if you train up a child in the way they should go, then they will not depart from it. In other words, if you train a little one the right path, they'll follow it as an adult. But it's interesting to me, before he gets into the meat of his explanation of this, he says, now, let's be honest here. Everybody's seen children who were raised in the way of faith go astray. All of us know that that can happen. So he reasons that that proverb cannot be an absolute or universal truth, but is rather a general wise saying, knowing that there are exceptions to it. 
But then he says we can take it as a good idea. We can recognize the importance of the idea that little ones do need to be taught. They do need to be trained as they're growing up. They need to be helped along the way. And so then he goes into a whole lot of detail about the importance of education, particularly for Wesley, religious education. He gives lots of details on what he thinks parents should do with and for their children. Now remember, he's writing in the 1700s. If you read through the whole thing, you might have the experience I did. Some of it seems right on target. And other parts of it you think, are you kidding? That sounds really harsh. I'm not sure that would be good for any child. But you can see as you read through it how he's using his reason to take what the passage says and apply it to everyday life. And then he ends up the writing saying, but the most important thing parents can do for their children is to teach them about the love of God. That we all should help our children know that God loves them. And that they can respond to God in love. And if they're following this path of love as a follower of Christ, then they'll be on the right path. It's a good illustration of how Wesley in his life, as he grappled with different issues, used his reason to tease out meaning and understanding out of the Scriptures and the teachings of the church. I want to read you... One last passage from the book of Discipline that kind of sums all of this up. It says this, Since all truth is from God, efforts to discern the connections between revelation and reason, faith and science, grace and nature are useful endeavors in developing credible and communicable doctrine. In other words, it's important for us to use all human knowledge to learn and study as much as we can and bring that to bear on our faith. It's part of us crafting our own witness, our own life and faith as we go through our lives. We each have responsibility to be thinkers, to think about faith deeply, to seek God in all of that. One of the reasons I'm a Methodist is because when I was a teenager, I began to have lots of questions about faith. I had been raised in the church. But, you know, as a teenager, I began to learn different things and study different things and read different books and questions emerged. And boy, mine came pouring out. And I am so fortunate that I was in a United Methodist family and in a United Methodist church where I was surrounded by people who said, ask your questions, go deeper, read more. God will be with you. You will find the answers. And I believe that's true for all of us. And United Methodists have emphasized this throughout our heritage that each of us is to be a theologian. Each of us should be a deep thinker about the ways of faith. But I'll remind you, last week when we were talking about being artists, I know some of you were thinking, oh no, I'm not an artist. And I cautioned you not to act so quickly, not to count yourself out. I would caution you the same because I'm betting some of you are thinking, I don't understand all this. I don't understand all this theology. Don't count yourself out so fast. Seek God and allow God to lead you and guide you as you go deeper in understanding what God might be doing in the world 
and in your life. I was reminded this week that the word amateur does not mean unskilled or unprofessional, but comes from the Latin word amare, which means to love. An amateur is someone who does something because they love it. So if you love Jesus, if you want to understand God better, if you want to align your life with God's life and doing good in the world, then I would say you are right in the middle of theology and faith. You are in the right place. Allow God to work through you. Bring your gifts. Bring your questions. And join us as we embrace a reasoned approach to faith and Scripture. Amen.